Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Welcome to the Afternoon Show. I'm Bill Arnold. And like always, I'm glad that we're going to spend this time together. My topics today are going to be a little interesting, a little dicey. We're going to start by talking about the healing church, what churches get wrong about pornography and how to fix it. Sam Black is my guest. And then in the next half hour, uh, Dr. Greg Borgon is going to talk about Satan and some of his strategies. So I think this is going to fit pretty well together this hour because I think they go... I think they work together, to be honest. But we've got a lot of uh, issues that are undermining, pornography is undermining a lot of issues, a lot of ministries in the local church, uh, from children's and teens and adults to marriage ministries, and it is uh, big. And we're going to try to figure out how we can do better as churches. And Sam Black is my guest. Um, Awfully glad to have him on for the first time. Sam, welcome. Bill, thank you for having me here. Looking yeah. forward to this conversation. Oh, I am too. I mean, this is such an enormous uh, subject, and there even some of the statistics. I, I, I think that they're they're low. I think they're higher than what some of the statistics say. Um, younger Christian men, thirty six percent say they use porn daily. I bet it's bigger than that. Hmm. Well, you know, we also have to keep in mind that when that study was taken. A large percentage, I can't remember, it's double digits, about, I believe it was 20-something percent, 30% of people who were taking the survey uh, through Barna said that if there is a video that is where the people are unclothed, where they're engaging in a sexual act, and that there is no other real storyline, that that is not pornography. Oh, that's so, not? That's not? That's what that's what many of the participants said. So our oh, views oh, oh, okay. have been so skewed in our culture that we don't even recognize pornography as pornography. Okay. Well that changes the rules dramatically then. Maybe Doesn't we should it? Yes. Maybe we should start by defining what pornography is. <laughs> well, you know, I that's the problem. And that's one of the things I point out in the healing church, what churches get wrong about pornography and how to fix it, is that many uh, of our ministry leaders are trying to talk to their congregations, and they're not even on the same page with them. Isn't that amazing? And so uh, I don't. I when it comes to identifying what pornography is, I take a very different view than most of your listeners might think about, and although they should. And that is, what does Jesus say about what is in our hearts? Mm -hmm. Because Jesus was concerned not about what someone wore or how they behaved or was this or was that. He said, if you look on another with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. So that should be our defining measure of what pornography is in our Christian lives. Because uh, I was at an, an event where uh, people were asking that, well, what would you define as pornography? And yet there had been people who described their hurt, their their struggle with unwanted sexual behaviors, and they talked about looking at 
underwear ads and things of that nature. Well, that was pornography to them. Mm -hmm. That is what caused them to lust. So I think uh, what is more important than putting a label on this is and this isn't, rather we need to look to our hearts and what is causing our hearts to lust, what is causing us to use others and objectify others for our own gratification, that is what we need to be concerned with because Jesus cares about the state of our hearts. Mm-hmm. All right. Sam Black is my guest. His book is called The Healing Church, What Churches Get Wrong About Pornography and How to Fix It. I suppose, Sam, everybody's got their own definition. Everyone has their own um, personal vocabulary, and they're going to define in their head what they think is porn and what isn't, and it's a sliding scale. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about things as being soft porn, and of course, that just gets worse and worse, doesn't it? Indeed. Uh, what was considered hardcore in the past is now considered uh, softcore today. It is, uh, yeah, we've, we've, we've run a, a difficult gamut here, but there's an impact to the individual uh, where people often find themselves, you know, uh, we, we talk about the impact to the church. What is the impact of the church? And among those, these are sociological studies from the University of Oklahoma and elsewhere that found a direct correlation between pornography use and reduced church attendance, sure. diminished faith, increased religious doubts, less volunteerism. And what's the, the beautiful thing that I did find as I was interviewing churches who were doing this work well, all of those things were reversed. Where churches in were engaging their congregations and providing both a safe place and a safe process for freedom, they had increased church attendance. Their faith was growing. Their religious doubts were uh, leaving. Uh, they were more likely to be reading their Bibles, pressing into their faith, pressing into their prayer. And pastor said, I don't do more work now, I do less. Whoa. So it was setting the church on fire. You mm-hmm. By creating disciples uh, through these difficult strongholds, they were creating disciples who said, I am ready to give back. Mm. Sam, how many ministry leaders do you think struggle with porn? You know, that is a study, and, and I believe that the survey results are are more in tune because Barna, uh, most pastors can well, uh, very well identify what pornography is, uh, much better than many others. And a 2016 Barna study reported that 57% of pastors and 64% of youth pastors said they had struggled with pornography currently, or they have in the past. And about 21% of youth pastors and 5% of senior pastors said they believe they are addicted to pornography. Hmm. That's very troubling. Where does the church go wrong when it comes to addressing this issue? I think often we have thought of, there's many ways I believe that the church goes wrong with it, but here's one. And one is that I believe that we often look at the adult male or female and see that suddenly they're confronted with an image and they need to either make a a poor choice, or they need to make a godly choice. Mm-hmm. And what we're missing is that the, many people are trapped in a stronghold. When you looked at the percentage of 
of 36% saying they're watching it daily of men and 14% of women say they're watching it multiple times a week. Well, those people are trapped in a real stronghold in their life. They, many of them want to be free from pornography, but we have simply equated to them say, hey, make the right choice. And we have missed the underlying factors that got them there in the first place. And it wasn't in adulthood. Typically, it happened as a child. There are three commonalities that are so that are across the board, ministry leaders, pastors that I've spoken with, and Christian counselors are saying this is what's so common in people becoming trapped in pornography. Early exposure, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, the repetitive ongoing use of pornography, especially through adolescence. Number three, some drama, trauma. That really happened often early in life, but could happen elsewhere. And so people have learned to anesthetize. It is so hard for that for that early exposure for a child. Now we're talking about children between the ages of eight and twelve, depending on the survey you're looking at. Mm-hmm. That often before a child even knows the basic mechanics of sex, they were being exposed to the most brutal, hardcore abuse of ugly pornography, and it is very hard for that brain to look away. That young brain that had that a feeling part of the brain that is very well developed at that age, that's why children often are very emotional, etc. But the prefrontal cortex, the front part of the brain, hasn't yet developed. And so we are often thinking that a child, because they we live in a Christian home, that they'll just make the right choice because they know better, even though we haven't informed them or prepared for them the day of not if they will see pornography, but when. So those children often, without any basis of understanding, go from zero to a thousand miles an hour in our pornified culture. And it's very hard for them to turn away. Dopamine kicks off and it begins lighting up that brain. Dopamine loves something that's never seen before. Uh, Children are naturally curious about what the opposite sex looks like without clothes. That's normal. But usually, uh, sometimes children might check each other out or something just out of curiosity. But that's where it typically ends. But with pornography, there's this never-ending stream that's often hidden and unprotected in our homes and that prefrontal cord, you know, cortex doesn't know what to say to all this information coming in. The dopamine kicks off, gives a spritz of something that feels good that the child doesn't even understand. Mm. But that ongoing repetition afterward begins to build neural pathways in the brain that begin to crave it more and more. And it, when it begins to, the cement that often glues this together for men and women is that drama that or trauma i'm sorry that happened often early in life whereas there is some pain and they began to unknowingly anesthetize their emotions their bad feelings and regulate their moods i mean that might sound a little preposterous to some of your listeners but are you more likely to get angry when you're tired or you haven't had food we call it being hangry right mm-hmm. well the kinds of things can happen when people begin having a when when they've traveled a pathway long enough of using pornography when they feel angry or frustrated or uh bored even these begin to expand where people learn to regulate their moods and their emotions with pornography and they don't even realize they're doing it sometimes mm-hmm. 
And, and so what we need to help people do is find a safe place where they can say, hey, I have been struggling. I don't know how I got here. I don't know why I seem to stay stuck in this prison. I want out, but I, I tried harder. I have promised myself, I've promised God, I've promised my spouse, I've promised others that I'd never view pornography again, and yet I keep finding myself coming back. Wow. Sam, let me take a short break. Sam Black is my guest. He's a renowned author and expert in the field of pornography recovery. He's the director of recovery education at Covenant Eyes and brings a wealth of experience to the topic. Uh, His book is called The Healing Church, What Churches Get Wrong About Pornography and How to Fix It. If you have a question uh, for Sam, you can email it to me, bill at myfaithradio.com. I can ask Sam on your behalf anonymously, of course, if you like, and we'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. I'm back with Sam Black. He's written a book called The Healing Church, What Churches Get Wrong About Pornography and How to Fix It. So, Sam, what about the uh, purity sermon? Is that effective? If I go to church well, and I hear the, uh, uh, the purity sermon, is that going to work? I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, people being taught that God, of God's standards and how he wants us to live in purity. Uh that is very clear in the Bible. But often, men and women who are stuck in this stronghold already know that they need to be pure. They just don't seem to know how to live it out. They want to, but they have built a trap of and a pernicious trap that I think you were talking earlier about. You're going to have a, another guest talk about how people are being trapped by Satan. Mm-hmm. And I, I do believe that this is a pernicious and evil trap that traps people, children at such young ages, who then grow up through adolescence using pornography and it's being hidden. And we haven't prepared parents to talk about this within the church. And now they're being stuck. And now we're saying, hey, we want you to be pure. But their mind, body, and spirit have been seared. It it has, and we need to help them with a safe place and a safe process that really helps them take those next steps toward freedom. You know, I, this is a walk that I had to do myself. I was exposed at 10 years old. Even though I grew up in a Christian home, it was hypocritically violent. And I would run to pornography unknowingly at that time because uh, I had a friend and his dad had pornography that was falling out of his closet. I could take anything I wanted and mm-hmm. I did. And that Pornography would follow me from middle school to high school, from college into my marriage. But uh, I probably, uh, you know, it, from that violence, I began to anesthetize my emotions like we were talking before. And and pornography would follow me all those years. And I was very fortunate. I'm probably among the f- most fortunate men you're going to meet because my wife has been, again, uh, been attending a church. And uh, I've 
basically become a bit agnostic. And while she is going to church, I'm not, but she asked me if I'll go to a marriage class with her. And these people were a little bit unusual. They would close the classroom door and they would say, look at the class and say, this is a safe place. And what is said here stays here. And within that environment, people talked honestly about the struggles in their marriage, the evil things that they might say, the mean things they might say, the destructive things that they were practicing. And one, that's where I also learned that pornography could be compulsive and addictive. And that was a great relief. I didn't have to stay this way. That meant I could break free from this. Mm-hmm. And God heals people. And, and I got to have men like you, Bill, come alongside me and walk with me in discipleship to live in Christ freedom. And listen, sometimes God heals people of their addictions instantly. They put down booze and drugs and cigarettes and porn and other bonds. God can do anything. Yes, he can. The Often he, Jesus invites us on a journey that forces us to humble ourselves and call on his name with childlike helplessness with, with other believers. Mm-hmm. Sam Black is my guest. His book is The Healing Church, What Churches Get Wrong About Pornography and How to Fix It. Sam, I know there's plenty of people listening right now, uh, both men and women, that as a result of looking at pornography feel shame. What are some of the keys to killing shame? So often we are involved in this cycle of of viewing pornography, feeling horrific shame, what I call self-hatred at my expense, they were like, again, they have promised everyone that and themselves that they would never look at pornography again. They keep coming back to it and they just feel like, God, I can't live up to the standard. What's wrong with me? Something's, I'm defective in some way. And then they'll flip that coin and try harder and try under their willpower. And, but they never stay on for very long. The willpower eventually breaks and they flip that cycle, then they're back to viewing. And so we need to get out of that cycle. One of the things that I think your listeners can do today is there's a free app from Covenant Eyes called Victory by Covenant Eyes, and you can download it. And within it, there are more than 30 courses that walk you through, how did I get here? Why do I seem to stay stuck? And how can I begin living in freedom? Mm-hmm. Great first step. Yeah. Sam, what are some of the m- most common lies that men and women tell themselves about uh using porn. Oh my, there's so many. After a while, pornography just seems like it is a necessity. Like, I don't think I can live without pornography. Mm. I don't like, uh, the reason I use pornography is because put in your, your slot. None of it's true, but we will blame our spouse. We'll blame others. We'll blame, hey, I just need to relax. This is the way I can relax. I need to be able to fall asleep tonight, and I don't think I can do it unless I do this. Uh, maybe God made me this way, or evolution made me this way. Mm-hmm. And see, all of those are lies, and we get stuck in what I call the the porn wreck. And uh, you're, you're physically... The person has begun to be so sensitized to pornography. That's the first part of the porn web. They become very sensitive to pornography. Two, they have a lot of triggers that push them over to pornography, like social, emotional, or environmental issues, stress, anger, frustration. You name the trigger, it's there. And then they become desensitized to pornography. The things that might have been seemed soft core in the past 
well, now that's not enough. And they keep upping the ante for more. And sometimes it even, of course, goes beyond simply viewing pornography and and crosses a line that they never thought they would cross, whether in a real life affair or in a chat room or other things. And it's often said that pornography will take you places you never thought you'd go, do things you never thought you'd do, hurt people you never wanted to harm, mm-hmm. pay a problem you never wanted to pay. Sam, okay, if seeking help, what what helps to hear? There's many things that that help to hear. Among those would be uh, that this is a struggle that's that you can overcome, that you can live in freedom, that you don't have to manage this. I think often in the church, we often say, you know, this is just a struggle we'll always have to deal with in a fallen world. The truth is you can live in total freedom from pornography and other unwanted sexual behaviors, but uh, not shaming language as well. If, If we ever want to teach our children or others to hide, we shame them. Mm-hmm. thinking that maybe they would stop their behavior if they were shamed enough. It never works. Yeah. It teaches the people to hide more. Yeah. So uh, a safe place saying, listen, I will walk with you. I I, I want to hear more. Let's, let's dive a little deeper. Hey, I'd be willing to go through some of those courses with you in the Victory app by Covenant Eyes. Okay. Uh, no, uh, continue. I'm sorry, uh, Sam. <laughs> no. So those are, you know, when we press in with one another and we uh, look for resources to support a real journey in, in freedom, those are always going to yield us helpful words to say because we need a better understanding of why people become trapped in pornography because with that uh, under- knowledge, we proceeds understanding and understanding proceeds change. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you... It- are the resources at Covenant Eyes that you just spoke of on the app, is that a good place? Uh, a listener said, what is a good book to read for men over 50 with this addiction for over 40 years? Yes. Well, that's a great place to start. The uh, the And uh, as well, you can download the first chapter to The Healing Church at thehealingchurch.com, the introduction and the healing, uh, the introduction and the first chapter. Uh, I do think the Victory app by Covenant Eyes is a great place to really get a grip on why why am I struggling here? Why is it why have I become trapped for so many years, even though I've wanted to break free? Another book that I highly recommend that was actually a part of my journey to freedom is a book by Dr. Mark Laser, Healing the oh, Wounds yeah. mm-hmm. of Sexual Addiction. Yeah. And wh- I'll give you one final other book to read, and that is Unwanted by Jay Stringer. Okay. All very interesting. Thank you very much for writing The Healing Church, What Churches Get Wrong About Pornography and How to Fix It. Sam Black has been my guest, and I would I would love to have you back on to continue this conversation because it is a big one. There's so much that we can cover, indeed. Yeah, we'll have you back. Thank you, Sam. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you. Sam Black, again, has been my guest. We'll take a short break and be right back with Dr. Greg Borgon. We're going to talk about Satan and his strategies. Be right back.
Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Welcome to the show. We're going to talk about one of my least favorite topics, which is <laughs> the existence of Satan. A lot of people they believe that he doesn't exist at all. And some believe that his power is unlimited. And yet others are confused about his purpose for mankind, while yet others are oblivious as to his tactics. That's what we're going to talk about today with Dr. Greg Borgon. Back in studio with me, Greg, once again, thanks for being here. It's good to be here, Bill. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's talk. Does Satan exist? Well, let's address that a little bit. Um, now, the Bible explicitly informs us, of course, of the existence of Satan. He's described as the enemy of man in, in Genesis 3, the father of lies in John 8, and the accuser in Revelation 12.10, among other things. The very name Satan means adversary. In Isaiah 14, we uh, understand how this story unfolded and how he came to be. It explains that. Satan was originally an angelic being, but he decided he wanted the honor and worship due only to God and was thrown out of heaven. Ever since he was cast out of heaven, long course with the angels uh, that chose to rebel with him, Satan's made it his purpose to oppose God and lead the people of earth into rebellion as well. You can't take a look at what's happening today and not at least um, surmise that the enemy is behind this. Now, Satan has a certain authority in this world. He's called the God of this age, according to 2 Corinthians 4, the prince of the power of the air, according to Ephesians 2. That's why we are, it says in Scripture, to be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, one big way Satan wreaks havoc in our lives is through deception. When Satan deceives us about who God is, who God says we are, and who he is, he gains power and authority in our lives. So Satan does not exist as one of the most potent lies Satan uh, tells the world. So at creation, God gave mankind authority over the earth. When Adam and Eve willfully disobeyed God, they gave up some of their authority. In listening to Satan, they subjugated themselves to the devil. Yet at the cross, Jesus stripped Satan of his authority Now is the time for judgment, it says in Scripture, on this world. Now the prince of the world will be driven out, according to John 12, 31. Now the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And we forget that sometimes. It's in 1 John 3, 8. Satan has no more authority over those who are in Christ except when they give it to him by believing his lies. Let's say that one more time, Greg. Satan has no more authority over those who are in Christ, except when they give it to him by believing his lies. Okay. That's gotta, the big thing of deception. You got to know what the lies are, and you have to know what when you're being deceived. That's exactly right. It's hard to know when you're being deceived when you're being deceived. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. But, you know, we can't be ignorant about... Well, one of the, the greatest strategies of any general on the battlefield is to know their enemy. Mm-hmm. So we Christians today, we have to know the enemy. So much information about Satan comes from Hollywood and other um, flawed sources. It's imperative that we go to the Bible for the truth on this and other matters. The, the, the Bible plainly tells us that Satan does exist. 
and it cues us into how he operates. We have no reason to be intimidated by him as his power is infinitely inferior to God's. But the Bible teaches us not to be naive in our spiritual battle. The key is to submit to God and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, it's interesting to me that the conditional statement is to uh, submit to God first, then resist the devil, then he will flee from you. So knowing that Christ has defeated him for good at the cross and Satan's end, that's, that's assurance that we have. And he's going to face eternal judgment. That's assured according to Romans 19, 20. Mm-hmm. Now, today, what we're seeing a lot in the paper are Satanists wanting to erect a statue of Satan wherever anything related to Christianity is. I don't know if the audience is aware, but actually uh, the Church of Satan was established in 1966 by Anton LaVey. And he was charging $2 for every one of his lectures. Now, the interesting thing about Satanists is that they don't necessarily believe in Satan, some of them, and some of them do. What they are more uh, identified with is by what they do, which they're involved in debauchery, they're involved in lies, they're involved in pulling people away from the truth and suppressing the truth. So um, that's their modus operandi. You can go online and take a look at what some of their principles are. So it's not a matter of them necessarily believing in Satan. And many of them who believe in Satan say they don't. But all of them still worship him through rituals and incantations and such. So that's a, a, a real threat. So let's get this point clear that Satan does exist He's not a figment of our imagination. The caricatures that we see on TV and in movies are nowhere near like him. He was a beautiful angel um, until he decided to um, usurp or try to usurp the throne of God. And he was thrown out of heaven. And now, because of that, he wants to destroy anything that will ever lead anybody to God's son's cross. Mm-hmm. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest, and we're talking about the strategy uh, of Satan, and we definitely want to know what, what it is so we can be sober and, and um, ready to, to uh, do battle. To do battle, exactly. Thank yeah. you. So uh, the next question that probably needs to be answered, and it's not commonly uh, known or taught, which surprises me, can Satan read our minds? Now, one of the areas of great confusion centers on whether the enemy can read our minds and know our thoughts. On the surface, if that were the case, we'd be absolutely helpless and completely incapable of escaping him. My research on this issue tells a different story, Bill. First of all, Satan is a created being of superior or super intellect, but does not have the attributes possessed of God. He's not all powerful. He's not all present. And he's certainly not all-knowing. Secondly, Satan has the benefit, now this is important, the benefit of observing mankind for centuries, becoming an able interpreter of man's behavior and underlying motives for that kind of behavior. He can predict our weaknesses based on observing how we live our lives. And think about this for a minute, audience. If you could follow somebody around for three weeks and they wouldn't know you were there and all you did was watch their behavior, you'd come back at the end of that three weeks, with some degree of understanding of what really makes them tick and what's really stored in their hearts. 
by just observing their behavior. Think about Satan now, who has a super intellect and has centuries to observe mankind. He can pick up the trend lines very, very quickly. The third point about can Satan read our minds is, first of all, he can't. He can, however, sow a thought in our minds like he did with Ananias and Sapphira when they sold property and lied to the Spirit. Judas Iscariot, where it says in John 13, 2, that, the, that, that Satan entered him and, and sowed thoughts into him. King David, when he numbered the troops in 1 Chronicles 21, uh, verse 1. So those are three indications right there. Also, if, we, if he could read our minds, why would he have asked God to remove the protection of Job so that he could prove that Job would abandon his faith? If he knew already what was going to happen, why would he even attempt it? And, and another important, probably one of the most uh, singularly most important examples is why would he have attempted, why would he have tempted Jesus in the desert if he already knew how Jesus would respond? Mm, good point. What's the purpose? And you'll notice that the dialogue between Satan and Jesus in the desert was audible, verbal. It wasn't a mind meld. They spoke to each other. So it wasn't a matter of reading Jesus's mind. Now, Jesus can read our minds, Mm -hmm. but they spoke audibly to one another. So can Satan read our minds? No, but he can sow thoughts in our minds. He can sow thoughts in our minds. Yeah, they often come in the first person. Okay. And where it says, you know, I'm a sinner. I, I don't have any right to to claim the name of Jesus Christ, so I'm just going to hunker down. That's a lie from the enemy. Yeah, it sure is. And another way that the enemy works is that he will always remind you of the failures of your past. And they'll come in the first person. They'll come in the memories that we have of times we failed and mm. sinned. Are those the sins that Jesus has forgiven as far as the east is from the west? And his, that the and wrong cast doings behind him. That he will right. no longer remember? You mean those? <laughs> Uh, you remember the, the session we had. That's absolutely right. And it says in uh, eight places in Scripture that God casts our sin behind him, that he remind, remembers it no more, that he blots it out. That's a wonderful thing. So if you're being reminded, the point you're making, I think, Bill, if you're being reminded of the sins, uh, the failures of your past, it's not from the Lord. It's not from the Lord. No. no. And also, you can understand that it's also a shaming feeling. God never shames us. He convicts us, but he never shames us. Hmm. So when we are reminded of the failures of our past, shame arises as a result. That is not of God. That's of the enemy because God wants to bring us to the victory of our future and the struggle is in the present, but God is God and Satan is not. Mm -hmm. How does shame fit into all this? I mean, as Christians, we should be ashamed of some things we do if it's sinful. We right? would, we should feel guilty of what we do. Guilty, yeah. There's a distinction there, I think, Bill. The shame that we feel, it's a natural emotional response of embarrassment. I mean, yeah, I'm not saying live in shame, but feel yeah. shame. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's, it's a natural sense of embarrassment. Uh, just even the last person you had on the show talking about pornography, part of the bondage of pornography is the shame that you feel which compels you not to reach out for help right because you feel so embarrassed about it mm-hmm. and so that's what the enemy wants you to be is embarrassed about it okay so the the third question that we want to address is what is satan's objective in all of this 
So we've already covered this passage in 1 Peter 5.8 where he prowls about the world like a lion, lion looking for a people susceptible to his influence. So once under his influence, he uses us to discredit God through sinful behavior in an attempt to dissuade others from receiving Christ as Savior and Lord. That's his primary objective, to sideline us, to bring discredit upon our Creator, and to compel people who are blinded because they don't know Christ from even considering the gospel. That's his objective. So what he fears the most, Bill, is that we will be awakened from our slumber and realize that he that is Christ who is in us is greater than he, Satan, who is outside of us, according to 1 John 4.4. That's a great promise Mm, to us. Sure is. He is afraid that once we realize that we have power over him through Christ, not of our own strength, but through Christ. Remember, we talked about if we submit to God, and resist the devil, he will flee from us. The first part being submitting to God. He's afraid that once we realize that we have power over him through Christ, we'll become his formidable foe. Mm -hmm. So, Greg Borgon, answer me this. Let's say you have a conversation with somebody who says, "Uh, you know, I'm not one of those Jesus people. You know, I'm not a God person like you or, and I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not one of those terrible people that like Satan. So I'm, yeah, I'm kind of in the middle. What would you say to me? I'd say to you that God has a standard, a plumb line, and that we deviate it just ever so slightly, it's sin in our life. And so consequently, if you've ever harmed somebody, thought ill will of somebody, I would ask them, I said, has that ever happened? Have you ever felt revengeful towards someone? Have you ever felt you want to do harm to someone? Um, That's sin. Mm-hmm. that's missing the mark of God. God doesn't want us to live in that arena. Mm-hmm. He wants us to live in the arena of victory. All right, let me take a little break. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest, and we're talking about Satan the tempter, and we don't like uh, anything to do with him. So <laughs> we'll be right back. You can learn more about Greg at heartofawarrior.org. That's heartofawarrior.org. Be right back. Well, books take you on amazing adventures. Wouldn't it be interesting to see what the Holy Land might have looked like through the eyes of Jesus? By winning Max Lucado's new book, you can do that. It's called In the Footsteps of the Savior. Now, with a special thanks to Thomas Nelson Publishing, you can win a copy every day this month. All you have to do to enter to win on the Faith Radio app or go to myfaithradio.com. Personally, I'd rather win a, a trip to the Holy Land um, I wouldn't have to go first class, but I, 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 I would prefer. But either way, I'd love to get my hands on a copy of this book, and I know you would too. So head over to Faith Radio, MyFaithRadio.com or the Faith Radio app. Okay, Dr. Greg Borgon's with me in studio, and we're discussing Satan the Tempter. And Greg, I think we got more to talk about what is Satan's objective. Yeah. 
So, well, first of all, Satan's intentions are clear. Since his instigation of evil on earth, Satan has been named the prince, God, and ruler of this world, according to John 14, 30, John 12, 31, and so forth. He is the enemy of God and truth, according to Matthew 13 and 2 Thessalonians 2. And he does everything he can to tempt individuals. Genesis 3 is an example. Luke 22, 31, 1 Timothy 3, 7. And larger groups of people, like, for instance, in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5 and Revelation 2, 10. He leads the whole world astray, according to Revelation 12, 9. Satan accomplished this by various means, including appealing to man's pride, interfering with the transmission of truth, placing false believers within the church. That's an interesting one. Mm, that's really interesting. 1 John eight forty four. Jesus says that Satan is a liar and the father of it. Bottom line. Mm. No equivocation there. So we know what his objective is, to discredit our creator, to remove any opportunity people have to respond to the gospel by discrediting him. And oftentimes he uses Christians' behavior as an example to discredit God. Mm-hmm. Because many of us as Christians claim the name, but we're not in the game. Right. We say we, we, we may share a biblical belief system that bears absolutely no correlation with how we actually behave, but how we behave over time will always reflect who we truly are at the core of our being. So what are his methods more specifically? His tactics are more subtle than overt, Bill. He doesn't want to draw attention to his schemes to destroy God's redemptive plans, first of all. What does that mean? It means that he wants to be in the shadows, secretive, and while he undermines the foundations that we stand on. Okay. And he does that again by convincing people he doesn't even exist. He doesn't want to be promoted. He doesn't want to be out there. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want to be celebrated. Well, and Hollywood has done a nice job turning him into a caricature in a red suit with a pitchfork. That's exactly right. And so that's the caricature, and, and, and people look at that, and today, joke. In, in the sophistication of, of our world, they realize it's a joke, but then they use it as a way to diminish the real substance of who Satan is, yeah. who remains in the shadows. So he doesn't want to draw attention to his schemes, but his methods are obvious, though, Bill. One authority says, remember Satan and his demons are fallen angels. What defines their powers and abilities is their angelic nature, not their evil nature. How they use their power and abilities has to do with their evil nature. So what are the methods? One of the primary tactics is to continually remind us, as we've talked about, of the failures of our past. We've already been through that. Ron Jones of Titus Institute suggests four ways Satan Um, attacks believers. Number one, he says, Satan incites our fleshly desires within us through the unbelieving world around us. You can see it in the movies. You can see it in photos. You can see it in magazines and newspapers that he uses the world to entice us and to stir up the desires that we have. Mm -hmm. The second way he talks, he, he suggests, is that Satan attempts to deceive us with lies of worldly wisdom through unbelieving world around us, people's ideologies and philosophies that may be attractive because it appeals to our independent nature, wanting to live our lives on a horizontal plane devoid of any vertical relationship with our Heavenly Father. 
All right, I got to slow this down a little bit, Greg. Satan attempts to deceive us with the lies of worldly wisdom through the unbelieving world around us. Yeah, worldly wisdom has to do with wisdom apart from God. Okay. Wisdom that sees God as an anathema. Gotcha, okay. And wisdom that says you are your captain of your own fate. Yeah. And you are the master of your destiny. And it's all about you mm-hmm. placing you on the, th- on the throne. Yeah. And I mean, a, a lot of the um, workshops and seminars... Uh, about finding out your potential are all about unwrapping this uniqueness of who you are without acknowledging the creator who gave it to you. Yeah, that's why I've never attended one of those seminars. (laughs) (laughs) Number three, he attempts to deceive us with a false Jesus and a false gospel through false Christians. That's scary. Yeah. Wow. And so, I mean, you have to read the scriptures for crying out loud to get a sense of who God is in Christ. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and how he lived his life and how he responds to life. That is the only true picture of who Jesus Christ is. And number four, Satan can physically affect us or ones that we love by illness, crimes, disaster, persecution, and the like. And it's not that we deserve it. It's that we live in a fallen world and we're subject to the consequences of other people's decisions. Now, we have this 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 great uh, opportunity to respond to these kinds of things by asking for God's protection. Every night when I go to bed, I pray for my grandchildren. I say, Heavenly Father, I'm asking you to protect them emotionally, physically, spiritually, intellectually, relationally, and financially. Do I think that that's going to stop the world from folding in on them? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. But I'm doing everything I can to build into them an inner core of strength from a biblical point of view so that when these things come at them from the world, they'll know how to handle them. But we can rely on the Lord to go ahead and provide that protection. Greg, Borgon, I don't like that Satan can physically afflict us or ones that we love with illness, crimes, disasters, persecution, and the like. Yeah. I don't like that at all. No, I don't like that at all either. And, and it's hard to go ahead and try to draw the line between. But keep in mind, when he, he went to God to try and ask God or try to get God to remove his protection from Job, mm-hmm. he had to seek God's permission. Right. So this is me. This is not what I'm reading in Scripture. But I speculate from that that he must have to do that when he goes to these kinds of drastic means for us when he comes to attack us other than the natural consequences of living in this world like COVID sure. and, and the rest of it. Yep. So other methods used to knock us off our path, to defeat us, to stop our advance, to thwart our spiritual growth and increase our impotence, include equivocation. In other words, it says in Scripture, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Get rid of the middle ground. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, no, no. Distortion, distorting God's truth like he did with Eve in the garden, um, sifting like he did Peter, sifting him through a set of circumstances and events that challenged how strongly he stood for the Lord, compromise, and creating situations that compel us, oh, it's okay if you do it this one time. So it's these many compromises that harden the heart through delusion, like we talked about off um, 
off the air about arrogant ignorance. People are ignorant about the enemy. They don't want to be informed, and they're arrogant about that ignorance. Mm-hmm. Um, outwitting us, uh, masquerading as somebody of light, thorn in the flesh like you used with Paul, um, struggle that we have as we just walk through this world, confrontation, worldliness, infiltration, and overpowering us. So those are his tools. That's what he's trying to do. So what can we do about it? That's the critical question. What can we do about it? Audience, remember, God tempts no one, according to James 1, 13 through 15. Satan, however, does. Our temptations will never be more than we can bear. If you take a look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now, that's a phenomenal promise. I love it. So if we receive temptation, the enemy wants us to believe we're helpless. Mm, We're not. We're not, according to this. God will not let us be tempted beyond which we are able. And then we are to first submit to God, then our resistance of the devil will be effective. He will flee from us, according to James 4, 7. Say no to ungodliness and live upright and godly lives, according to Titus 2, 11 through 14. Follow Christ's response to Satan when he was tempted by him in the desert. Speak scripture out loud. Use scripture as, as your greatest weapon. It's the only offensive weapon you have in your armor. Amen. And guard your heart from it issue, because from it issues forth, good or bad, depending on what's stored within. All right, Greg, this is a great study. I want to go back and go through each one of these uh, strategies and just to be aware of them because it's always good to know what the enemy is, is trying to do and be prepared to, to um, take up the, uh, armor of God. the armor of God. Exactly. Thanks for putting words in my mouth. Because, uh, <laughs> Sorry, buddy. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's the first day back from a long weekend, right? And I, I appreciate the help if you want my honest opinion. All right. Thank you, Dr. Greg Borgon. Heartofawarrior.org is his website. We're going to take a break. When we come back, John Bloom's in the green room. We're going to talk about his brand new book, True to His Word, 100 Meditations of the Faithfulness of God. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com. 